Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance, nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. Well, it really is hard to believe that Christmas is almost here. We are so excited about the services coming up on Thursday of this week, and uh, we are just expectant as a church for God to show up uh, in a really big way. Now, you know, if you've been around here for any extended period of time, that we love our guests, we love our visitors, we love those of you who are new with us today, and, and we really take treating you well very seriously. And so... When we have all of our Christmas services this coming week, we really see these as an opportunity that God has given us, has entrusted to us to really serve and communicate with people, to serve them well. And so this is an opportunity for, for us to not just talk about Jesus, but for us to really illustrate Jesus by serving them and by showing hospitality here on our campus. And so I just want you to know that uh, there are still plenty of opportunities for you to be a part of these services by uh, serving on either our hospitality team or one of our children's teams. Uh, we still have some openings that we need to have filled that we would love for you to be a part of. And if you're interested in that, all you need to do is simply text CHRISTMAS16 to 25827 from your smartphone. And so Christmas 16 to 25827 and come and uh, be a part of a few of our services uh, during Christmas this week. We're, we're so excited about it. Now, as Daryl said a moment ago, we do continue this series called His Voice, where we've been trying to kind of go back in time and imagine the original Christmas story in a different way from all the different perspectives of those who were a part of the story 2,000 years ago. Now, if you've been a part of church during this time of year before, you've probably heard that, you know, Jesus is the greatest gift that we could ever receive and that he's God's gift to us that he gave us 2,000 years ago. And, and that's absolutely true. But here's the thing. We know to this day that there is a difference between a gift that we need and a gift that we want, Right? I mean, we know that this is true, and, and we're certainly going to experience this in the next day or, or in the next week or so, all right? For example, suppose you really want a gift card to your favorite restaurant, all right? And when you go to open up that card and, and you, you can feel inside that it's a gift card, how will you react if, if when you open it, you see that it's a gift card, but it's a gift card to Weight Watchers? <laughs> They're probably not going to go over too well, Right? 
Uh, how about this? How, if, if an aunt or an uncle, you're, you're chilling at their house and, and they already creep you out to begin with, but you're there because it's what you're supposed to do during this time of year. They give you a really big gift and you can tell that it, it, it's, it's a really big book and, and you, you love to read. And so you're excited about unwrapping it. You pull back the wrapping paper and, and you look down and the title of the book is How to Stop Being a Selfish Jerk. <laughs> yeah, we, we probably wouldn't take that too well. You know, we know that there is a difference between a gift that we need and, and a gift that we want. We would much rather prefer a gift that we want over a gift that we need. Why? Well, because a gift that we need, a present that maybe meets a need in our own life, reveals that, that we don't have it all together. I mean, to receive and accept a gift that really meets a need that we have, it requires swallowing our pride to a degree and admitting that, again, we're, we're not all that put together. And so a question I want to ask you before we go any further is this. Do you think Jesus is more like a gift that we need or is he more like a gift that we want? I mean, what if Jesus was given to us because we were so helpless, desperate, lost, and broken that, that there was nothing that we could possibly do to save or help ourselves? And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the birth of Jesus, the original Christmas story, from the perspective of a prophet by the name of Isaiah. All right. Now, just so you know, a prophet is kind of a fancy Bible word that simply means a communicator on behalf of God. And you see, these men were, were sent by God to talk with his people and Sometimes we'll refer to God's people in the Bible as the Israelites, the Jews, or, or the Jewish people. It's all, it's all the same people, okay? And so these prophets were sent by God to communicate all right, some promise that God had made to them. And so their primary role wasn't so much to predict the future. It wasn't about you know, unveiling what God was about to do, although that did include it at certain points in time. No, the primary role of a prophet in the Old Testament, the front half of the Bible, was to remind his people of a promise that he made and, and some plans that were going to unfold, whether they saw it becoming reality or not. And so all throughout the Bible, God's relationship between his people kind of went back and forth, and, and they had this very on-again, off-again relationship with him. One minute, they're serving God, they're loving God, but then the next minute, they're turning their back on him, and they're wondering, God, where are you, right? And so they find themselves immersed and just lost in their doubts, and, and God seems silent and seemed distant from their circumstances, and so every time the Jews would go to look for God, it was really frustrating because there were moments when, when God just didn't make himself known. Uh, have you ever looked for something only to end up empty-handed and experienced just how frustrating that is? I, I heard something recently that was funny, and I thought I'd share it with you. Uh, comedian Jay Leno said, uh, recently the U.S. Supreme Court has decided that there will be no nativity scene in Washington, D.C. This isn't for religious purposes, he said. They just simply couldn't find three wise men and one virgin. <laughs> Come on, that's funny. Lighten up, all right? <laughs> and so we know that it's a frustrating place. There's a connection here somewhere, all right? I tried weaving it in. It's frustrating to try to find something only to end up empty-handed, right? And so that's precisely where the Jews were in their relationship with God time and time again. They wanted to pursue God, but then God just kind of stood at a distance. 
And so that's, that's what we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and uh, open up to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, all right? Isaiah is in uh, about halfway through your Bibles uh, in between the books of Song of Solomon and Jeremiah. If you don't own a Bible, there's a uh, black Bible right in front of you. That's our gift to you. If you don't own one, be sure to take it home with you. And if you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's right on that uh, uh, table as you walked in a moment ago. And uh, again, that is our gift to you. We're going to be in Isaiah, beginning in chapter 11, starting in verse 1, okay? Now, as you're turning there or jumping there on your phone, let me just set up the context here a little bit more specifically for you, all right? In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire, which were kind of an opposing army to the Israelites, had, had invaded Israel, all right? And at first, the Israelites didn't like it. They were wondering, God, why did you allow this to happen, But then what ended up happening over time is is they liked the security and the comfort and and the peace that the Assyrians actually provided them. And so what ended up happening was faithful men and women of God who had worshipped God their entire lives, that all of a sudden their focus went from the Lord to other lesser things. And, And again, they got distracted by their hurts and their doubts and their questions. And so Isaiah was a prophet sent by God to kind of step in the middle of their circumstances, in the middle of their darkness, and to remind them that, hey, in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this brokenness, and in light of all of your questions and doubts, just so you know, God's still going to come through on his word. I mean, he's still going to provide that king that he promised our generations years and years and years ago. In fact, this king is going to come. He's not here yet, but he's going to come, and he's going to bring about this kingdom that will never end, that will last forever. And by the way, it's a kingdom where there's no pain, suffering, evil, or darkness. And so Isaiah communicated that in hopes that it would give the Jewish people something to hang on to. And so in chapter 11, verse 1, all right, we read about uh, one of the prophecies, in other words, one of the foretellings of the birth of Christ. And, and there are about 300 prophecies in the Old Testament uh, talking about the arrival of King Jesus. Check out verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 11. Here's what we read. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. What in the world is Isaiah saying here? I mean, is he smoking something? What's going on? Well, earlier in chapter 10, Isaiah promised that that God would defeat the Assyrian Empire that had invaded Israel. And and the imagery used to describe God's victory is that the Lord would come through. He would, you know, come through and and cut down the forest of Assyrians with an axe and level off every tree. In other words, he would do away with the Assyrian Empire that had invaded Israel. Now, as backwards as this sounds, as we said a moment ago, we're told that during this time's During this time, the Jews actually began to worship the Assyrian Empire. Now, they didn't necessarily bow down in front of them, but you see, the Assyrians gave them a lot of comfort. They gave them a lot of prominence and significance in the world. And and so over time, their, their hope and their security went from being in the Lord to then being in this army that had taken over their country years ago. And yet God promised that that something new and better would would take root once the illusion that they had been counting on had been completely cut down. And so for a moment, and so for a moment, the the Israelites were going to feel hopeless. They were going to feel desperate, like, God, why have you removed the stability of the Assyrian Empire? 
And so just when they thought that God wasn't going to intervene and that he was furthest away, God was about to to step in. And so according to verse 1, here's just one question that I want to throw your way. It goes like this. Is it possible? Is it possible that you've limited God by explaining your doubts for him? Is it possible that you've limited God by explaining your doubts for him? Now, there's no doubt that once the Assyrians were removed from power, that the Israelites were going to wonder, I mean, what was going on here? The stability that we had, the organization that, that, that we once knew will be no longer. I mean, they would look at the chaos in their community and think, God, where are you? I mean, why have you allowed this to happen? I mean, the one thing that we could count on for stability, protection, and comfort, and security, it's been taken out. Why did you let that happen? You ever had that conversation with God before? You ever just felt lost in your doubts and honest questions before him? I mean, I guess we could say that that it's one thing for our circumstances to, to cause us to ask God some really good questions, but it's another when he seems silent, right? And I guess it's something completely different when we hear silence, and so we start to answer for God. Now, if you're like me, when God doesn't make himself clear or I don't like the answer that's maybe given or he seems distant, again, I will overinterpret my circumstances and, and I will find myself speaking on behalf of God. And, and sometimes a friend will do this or, or maybe I will do this for a friend. And, and again, I, I will attempt to answer God for people in the midst of their questions. And I think we all have a tendency to do this. And so maybe a friend of yours has recently gone through depression, and they wonder, I mean, why would God let me go through this? It, I just feel hopeless in life. And, and so we feel maybe tempted to say, well, you know, maybe you have some unconfessed sin in your life. Or it could be that a coworker wants to know, I mean, wh- why did God let my spouse suffer and die of cancer? And yet our tendency might be to respond, well, God needed another angel. You see, it's one thing to go through that. It's another to experience silence. And yet it's something completely different when we try to answer for God. And it's an answer that's either not true or it's just not the right time to say it. And so the truth is, I don't know why God has allowed you to go through what you've gone through this year. I don't know what pain or darkness you bring to the table today. But I do know that we do have this tendency to overinterpret our circumstances. And so a question I want to ask you goes like this. What if Christmas, what if Christmas could be a reminder to you that God has actually been in your circumstance of pain before? Have you ever felt betrayed by a friend? Have you ever felt like someone's spreading rumors about you? Have you ever gone back to your hometown and, and people want to kill you that they're out for your life? If, have you ever had, you know, best friends just turn their back on you when you needed them most? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been praying before? And, and as you are praying, you can't get the words out. And when you do, it feels as if you're just talking to a brick wall. No one's listening. God doesn't care. You ever been there before? I have. And you think, well, there's no way that God could identify with me. There's no way that, that Jesus could resonate with that. Yet, yet I beg to differ. If you find yourself in the midst of those circumstances today, and if Jesus were to show up in human physical form, he would look at you in the face and he'd say, me too. I've been there before. 
I know exactly what that's like. In fact, this is why Isaiah later says in chapter 53 that this Messiah, this King, Jesus, would be a man of sorrows who would experience a lot of unjust, unjust condemnation and punishment. And so this shoot or branch in verse 1 um, would spring up from the tree. That, that is a, obviously a reference to Jesus. Look at verse 2 here. Isaiah goes on to describe this Messiah, this Jesus. He says, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, if the Jews had any confusion about this branch that would rescue their nation from you know, such desperation, Isaiah reminded them that, that God was gonna keep his promises, all right? Now, for several generations, the Jews have been told that the Lord would send this Messiah, this promised one, to come and rescue them. Now, hang with me here for a moment as I attempt to explain this, okay? Now, the term Messiah literally means anointed one. Now, back in the ancient world, many different leaders were anointed. Kings, prophets, and uh, priests were all anointed with oil. So what in the world does that mean in regards to Jesus? Well, in other words, we can retranslate or rephrase Isaiah's words in verse, in verse 2 there by saying that, that this Messiah, Jesus, was anoint, is going to be anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. And so in other words, an ancient Jewish person who was pretty well-schooled in the law would have read that and understood that this Messiah was going to be all three of the, of the anointed ones in one person. He was going to be a priest, he's going to be a king, all right, and this Messiah is going to be a prophet. Now, here's the thing. If, if you and I were to kind of compile a list of, of everything that's revealed to us in Scripture about who Jesus is and, and what he's all about and the life that he lived, and, and we were to kind of match it up with our perception of him, because the reality is when I say Jesus, whether you follow Jesus or not, there's some kind of image that pops up in your mind about who he is, right? And if we were to take what Scripture reveals to us about who he really is and match it up with our preconceived notions, chances are the two couldn't be more vastly different. I mean, I gotta be honest with you, for most of my life, I've had this version of Jesus, this image of Jesus that's been watered down, reduced, lessened, and almost, and pretty much emasculated. Because you see, the, the thing is, our culture has kind of helped us form our image of Jesus. Why? We would prefer Jesus who, who just plays it nice. I mean, we prefer Jesus who, who's just really kind, right? We don't want a Jesus who, who gets angry. We don't want a Jesus who, you know, steps in the midst of tension. We certainly don't want a Jesus who, who would call sin, sin, and, and would enact judgment upon somebody. We, we would rather have a Jesus that would bless whatever we redefine marriage to mean. In fact, yeah, that's the Jesus that I want. And, and so this image of Jesus, honestly, is much lesser than who he really is in Scripture. Let me give you an example of this. So later on in Isaiah chapter 37, all right, God follows through with his promise to completely wipe out the Assyrians, all right? Now, he promises this in Isaiah chapter 10. We're going to look at both texts here in just a second. But before we read it, understand that when it comes to our belief in God, we believe in the Trinity. That word's not found in Scripture, okay? But it's the belief that God is one. God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the, uh, God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father. They're three in one. And so that means all throughout Scripture, whenever we see God the Father or God the Son or the Spirit, we can interchange it with the other attributes of who God is. Now, we're also told in Scripture that the Lord does not change. 
In fact, Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if that's the case, I want you to kind of re-read this passage of Scripture from maybe a different perspective, from the vantage point of maybe challenging your view of who Jesus is. Isaiah chapter 10, here's the promise of what's going to happen. But look, Jesus, the Lord of heaven's armies, will chop down the mighty tree of Assyria with great power. He will cut down the proud. That lofty tree will be brought down. Is that a Jesus you know? And so here's the fulfillment of this later on in chapter 37. Here's what happened. That night, the angel of Jesus Christ went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Merry Christmas, right? (laughs) This isn't the baby that we find in the manger. No, seriously, I mean, does that description fit your image of who Jesus is? I mean, is that the Jesus that you learned about in Sunday school as a kid? Now, here's the thing. Over time, what we've done is we've cleaned up Jesus to fit into this mold that's a lot more comfortable, acceptable, and and socially tolerant. But here's been my experience when dealing with the broken parts of my life and in the lives of other men, that a weak, passive, pathetic Jesus actually leads to a weak, passive, pathetic life. And it's not the God that we find in Scripture. The Bible goes so far to say that the demons and the dark forces of Satan, when they hear the name of Jesus, they shudder where they are. They know who he is. And so here's my second question for you. Have you been following or avoiding a lesser version of Jesus? Have you been following or avoiding a lesser version of Jesus? I mean, let's be honest, who wants to follow someone who's weak, insecure, full of fear and and anxious about everything? Who wants to follow a leader who isn't willing to do what it takes to stand up for what's right and true? Let's be honest, doormats aren't worth following, right? You see, Christmas isn't about Jesus coming to earth because we were cute and lovable. Christ didn't leave heaven because he wanted to just be a good example to us and, and be a good teacher. He didn't come to just promote love and bring about unity or because we needed some inspiration in life. No, Jesus came because apart from him, we are helpless, broken, and deserving of death. You see, he came to fight our battle that we couldn't win ourselves. Now, before Jesus' birth, we read a couple of different instances when God actually did show up and interact with men at different points in time. God showed up in the form of a fire on one occasion. He showed up in the form of a windstorm, kind of like a tornado or a hurricane. And then God showed up in the form of a smoke and smoke. And, and you see all these manifestations of God in the front half of scripture always communicated judgment or, or God was making himself known to communicate punishment to his people. And so it really begs this question. Whenever Jesus was born, Why did he choose to come in the form of a human? Why why was he born as a baby to to a teenage virgin? Virgin. Well, previously, God, again, usually only appeared to to bring about judgment and punishment. But you see, 2,000 years ago, when he showed up in the form of a baby, he didn't come to bring about condemnation. He came to bring about salvation. And Jesus said it like this in John chapter 3, verse 17. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. You see, God, Christmas is all about God's voice becoming God's presence in the midst of this really dark and broken world. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself right about now, okay, Patrick, this, this doesn't add up to me, all right? Just a moment ago, you said that Jesus was the one who went and wiped out 185,000 warrior men all like that during the night. And yet, Jesus? 
when he lived here on earth, he couldn't even save himself from going to the cross? I mean, he couldn't even keep the Roman soldiers from arresting him? I mean, it sounds, let's be honest, it sounds a little passive to me. It's, it sounds like he's a doormat. And I guess I see where you're coming from. But it depends on how you look at it. Because, see, honestly, that's probably the Jesus that we need to fear the most. I mean, guys, suppose you go home later tonight, and as you walk through the front door and you make, yourself, you make your way into the kitchen, you see that there's a hostage in your house who has your family, your wife, and all your kids at gunpoint. And, and so you're, you're trying to bring reason to them, and, and you're trying to say, well, you don't have to do this. You know, let, let's walk away. You're, you're going to go to jail and all these things. And, and so finally, as you're trying to talk sense into this, into this gunman, he says to you, okay, here's the deal. Here's what I'm going to give you. Either you can walk away free, you can walk away right now, but then your family, they're all going to get killed, or, or I'll kill you and your family can walk free. And so guys, what do you do? What does the strong man do? Well, the honorable man steps up and he sacrifices his life so that those around him who he loves most can walk away free. You see, the definition of masculine strength is not determined by how well we can fight for ourselves. No, true strength from a godly perspective is how much we're willing to fight for what is right and true and fight for people who can't fight for themselves. You see, Jesus never lost control all throughout his ministry. No, he willingly laid his life down. In fact, we know that whenever Jesus was up on the cross, he could have called the whole thing off whenever he wanted. He could have called the entire angels down from, from heaven, all the armies of angels to come down, rescue him, and completely wipe out the Roman soldiers and all the religious leaders. But you see, Jesus, he didn't just go to the cross. Catch this. He didn't just go to the cross, but Jesus, he stayed on the cross. And Jesus stayed on the cross because he knew that it was either his life that could be taken and we would walk free, or it'd be our lives that were taken and he could walk away free, but he couldn't take both. And so that's why Jesus came. And that's the definition of, of what we see as, as true strength. Now let's keep going with our text and, and look at verses three and four as Isaiah continues to describe Jesus here, all right? Thank you for putting up with my voice today, by the way. I really need to quit smoking cigarettes, all right? They were my wife's, all right? I just, <laughs> kidding, okay. All right, verse three, he will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. Jesus, he will give justice to the poor and, and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth, check out the magnitude and the sovereignty of Christ. The earth will shake at the force of his word and, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. Now, Isaiah, Isaiah said that, that Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge in a very unexpected way. Now, Jesus will judge not based upon what can be seen from our perspective, by, but by really what is unseen, what's in our heart. Now, we think that this is a good thing, right? In fact, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that whenever someone offends us in our life or we see someone make a mistake, we're, we're always quick to judge them based upon their behavior, based upon their action. Yet when we maybe make that same mistake, when, whenever we blow it, we judge ourselves based upon our intentions, don't we? And so we say, well, you know, my heart was right. I didn't mean to do it. And yet we're constantly told in our culture that, that we're to follow our heart and, and that that's a good thing and, you know, do what feels right. 
God said this through another prophet named Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9. Check it out. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Now, you're not going to find this verse on a coffee mug or a magnet on your refrigerator, all right? (laughs) I've yet to see this verse on some Christian t-shirt. I've never heard it recited at a wedding. You know, what attracted you to your fiance? Well, the heart, his heart, her heart was just so beautiful. Actually, it's wicked, all right? (laughs) It doesn't happen. And so we have this kind of glamorized view of, of, of what is inside. And yet, whether we know it or not, our hearts are the places where we keep things that we don't want anyone else to see. Our hearts are the places where we keep all the fear, the shame, the insecurities, and, and the guilt. And so here's my last question for you. It goes like this. What are you hiding that promises freedom but is actually enslaving? What are you hiding that promises freedom but is actually enslaving? Now, I know that that question seems a little bit backwards and a little bit confusing. But the truth is we've all got stuff in our life that we don't want anyone else to know about, right? In fact, we go to great lengths to keep whatever that is, whatever wound or whatever mistake, whatever kind of thing from our past, we do whatever it is to to cover over it. So we deny it, we suppress it, and, and we just, we keep it hidden. Why? Because we think that if that part of our life would be made known to other people, then we wouldn't be accepted, that people wouldn't like us. And and so we just do our best to hide it, suppress it, and and deny it at all costs because we think that that's what real, true life is all about. About a year ago, a uh, mentor of mine who leads a church out in Boulder, Colorado, called me up and challenged me to attend a men's retreat out in Colorado that he had just attended himself. And and i got to be honest with you, retreats aren't my thing. All right, I hate them, I avoid them, I dread them like the black plague or something. I mean, it, I just don't like them. And so I said, you know what, I really don't think that going up into the mountains with a bunch of dudes I've never met before is my kind of thing. And, and they don't tell you a lot about this retreat beforehand. And, and so I just was like, I, I don't think I'm interested. And so he said, how about this? If you come out here to Denver, I will go on the retreat with you. And so I said, okay. I, you know, trust this guy with my life. He, he's kind of like a spiritual father to me. So I said, all right, I'm in, I, I'll go. And so again, they don't tell you a lot about this retreat. And in fact, uh, when we landed in Denver, just back in October was when I went on it. Um, again, no idea what to expect. And so the whole time driving up the mountain to this campsite, I'm dreading, I'm hoping that, you know, our car breaks down or something and that we get lost and that's my excuse to, well, we tried. I even, I even flew out here and couldn't find it, you know? And yeah, I gotta be honest, it was a great retreat. And, and to this day, I can tell you that I have never learned or experienced God's grace in a way that I did on that weekend. And I really saw what God's design for true community in our life is, is really all about. And, and on that retreat, I, I learned about my responsibility as a man to, to take responsibility and, and to not avoid, to not dish out blame, to not point my finger at other people, but to take it on myself. Because you see, my personal call to be a husband, a father, and pastor and leader of this church is, is to take responsibility. And, and so this retreat really dug deep into that, and, and it, was, it was really refreshing and And I walked away really challenged. Now, before you go on this retreat, again, I can't tell you everything, but I can tell you this, that that you're given a homework assignment, all right? Now, part of this homework assignment is that you have to reach out to four friends in your life who are closest to you, who know you inside and out, and you have to ask them two questions, all right? What are three things that you love about me, and what are three things that you would change about me? Now, I knew that this homework, this assignment was going to be a little bit uncomfortable, and so again, I avoided it, and... And so I eventually sent the questions out to 
some of my closest friends, and almost immediately they emailed it right back to me, and, and I didn't open the email for about three or four days. <laughs> and when I finally got the courage, I, I read through the list of, you know, positive attributes and characteristics that I have, and, and then when I got to the list of what others see in me that is really broken and maybe dark, sinful, and things that honestly I may not be aware of. There, there, there were some stuff on that list, and I'm like, yeah, I, I understand that. Yeah, I, I've seen that in me for a while. Now, yeah, we've talked about that one before, you know. But there was also some stuff on those lists that my buddy shot back to me that honestly was like, really? Because I, I, I don't really struggle with that. Well, one of them, I'll just tell you, one of them was anger. Close friend of mine said, you know, Patrick, you, you get angry pretty easily, and you tend to overreact at different times and in different circumstances. And I said, okay, I've never really thought myself as an angry person, but okay. So then I opened up the next email, and my second friend said, you know, the things I would change about you, number one, you, you get angry a lot. You, you tend to overreact in different circumstances. At this point, I'm really ticked off, all right? <laughs> I deleted them from my phone. Defriended them on Facebook. Don't talk to me again, all right? <laughs> I didn't know, I guess, what I expected to feel when I read through that list. And, and part of me thought that, man, it's really going to hurt. And you just got to trust me when I say this. I'm, I'm not being dramatic when, when I say this. But as I read through that list of, of just some junk in my life, what's broken inside me, I thought it would hurt. But as I read through it, I... I was overcome with a sense of freedom. I was overcome with a sense of freedom because I realized that, that these guys in my life who love me and care for me, they see that, and yet they're still my best friend. And in a way, they were saying, you know what? We know that you've got that going on, but I want you to know we still love you and we still, we still believe in you. And you see, that's what grace is all about. You see, if I don't keep what is broken in me out in front of me, then I will hide, deny, or suppress it. And honestly, it'll start to vent out sideways into some of the most important parts of my life, and, and it just won't end up good. And again, that's a lot of our stories in here. We've got stuff that from our past we haven't dealt with. We, we've got sin in our life that we haven't confessed, that we haven't made known. Maybe for you it's an affair that you've been having, or, or maybe you've been wrapped up in porn, or it could be that you, know, you paid for an abortion years ago. You've never told anybody about it, or perhaps you've been having these suicidal thoughts. And, and so you think, man, I just gotta, I gotta keep this hidden because no one else can know about it. Why? Because you're being promised freedom, but really it's just an illusion. And so look at what Isaiah says next here. He says, he, Jesus, will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. And Jesus embodied what is right and true. And so if Isaiah said that Jesus will judge us based upon what others don't see, he'll judge us based upon our heart and what we've been hiding, and yet we know that he accepts us anyways and that he can give us what we need most and he gives us grace, well, let me ask you, would that change anything for you? I mean, I think a lot of us, we've walked in here, I'm convinced of this more than ever, that a lot of us, we've walked in here and we're saved. I mean, we're good with God. But a lot of us aren't free, right? We have salvation, but we're just not walking in freedom. But you see, realize that when we choose to believe in Jesus and we trust our life and our eternity with him, that a guy named Paul, later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, says that he, Jesus, who knew no sin, actually became your sin for you. Why? So that we might become 
the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus came to this earth to give us what we needed that he had. And so would anything change for you if you realized that Jesus sees that part of your life and yet he doesn't have punishment for you. In fact, he just has grace. Now, I'm done with my message here, all right? But I'm not done talking yet. And I just, as your pastor, got to get some things off my chest here. And uh, what I want to do is just kind of have a family meeting for a moment uh, as, as a church. And so if you're a guest with us today, now might be a great time for you to leave. You don't have to, all right? But uh, you were forewarned, all right? <clears throat> you think this is water, right? <laughs> don't email me, all right? <laughs> now, for just a few minutes, I, I want to be open and honest with you just about some rumors, some murmurings and questions and misinformation that, that has really circulated our church recently. I think we all can agree that this year has been really difficult for all of us. Our church has experienced so much change, transition, and even tragedy more recently. I've been the pastor here for about seven months, and, and I'll be the first to admit that I haven't led perfectly. I haven't, and I need and will continue to need a lot, a lot of grace and patience and forgiveness from you. Understand that about three years ago, some of our staff and, and elders sensed that major change was on the horizon for our church. None of us really knew exactly what this was going to look like, but we started to realize that, that God was preparing our church for a new season, for kind of a fresh start. And so you may recall about 18 months ago from this stage, our former senior pastor, Ken Eidelman, and myself started to communicate the need to just be flexible as a church. And, and we didn't want to catch anyone off guard with some of these changes, but we made an intentional effort to, to prepare you and to prepare the soil. Again, we didn't know exactly what this is going to look like, but, but pretty soon along this journey, we realized that God was calling us to reach more people in our community by becoming one church with multiple locations. And the truth is that we are still very committed to this to this day, and we are so excited about it, and we believe that this is of God and that this is our future here. Now, here at Crossroads, we've had the luxury of being a very stable church, all right? We've been a very stable church, but with stability, you have to realize that there's also the risk of stagnation. And the truth is, whether you want to believe it or not, since we moved into this facility back in 1998, we haven't seen much growth here. And just being honest, we have really yet to reach our potential as a church. And so rather than people coming to us here at our Newburgh campus, we've set out and determined that, you know what, God's calling us to go to them by reproducing campuses all across the tri-state area. Now, in this journey, we've realized that, that every ministry has an expiration date when it's no longer accomplishing the purpose that it originally was set out to do. And so for the past year and a half, we've said things like, you know, our message is timeless, but, but our methods are timely. The mission to reach people should, should always take priority over the specific ministry itself. And so this is why that this past year has really been about clarifying our vision as a church and, and where we're headed as a future. It was all also almost a year ago that we announced that we'd be looking for a new worship pastor. Now, before his tragic accident last month, David Reinhardt had been serving in the role as the executive director of our Worship Arts Academy. Now, one thing that we learned when David transitioned into this role is that we didn't have a strategy, we didn't have an infrastructure for the choir, for the worship ministries, or everything else that David was over without David at the core and without him at the, at the center. And so that's why you've probably observed that the choir hasn't sung since Easter, but understand that they will be singing during the six Christmas Eve services, all right? 
Now, despite what has been spread, despite the rumors and misinformation, we have no intentions or plans at this time to cancel or disband the choir. Now, in regards to where we are with worship today, let's remember that worship is not the ministry of the church, but it's simply a ministry of our church. Now, for us to still have a viable worship ministry in the future, we've had to recently do some internal restructuring. Now, please understand that that our worship team has been spread pretty thin and is trying to balance a lot of responsibility and a lot of tension. We're trying to manage and organize this massive ministry that's been used to doing certain things in a certain way for, for over 20 years, while at the same time, organize and produce an excellent weekend experience every single, every, every single week, every six days. Now, this team is also trying to make space for the future in planning and dreaming about what, what the future is going to hold. I want you to know that our simple goal here at Crossroads, from our hospitality teams to our worship teams to our youth ministry, all right, to our global outreach, we're simply trying to point as many people to Jesus as possible in the shortest amount of time. That's it. That's what we're about. And so if you've been a part of Crossroads for a while now and you've been a Christian for a really long time, our focus shouldn't be on who's here. Our focus should be on who's not here, Right? And so if we don't communicate clear enough, if you don't like a certain style, if you don't like how the coffee's made, or, or you maybe don't agree with something, can you just give us some grace? Can you be patient with us? We're human too. Don't call me reverend. There's nothing reverend about me. You know that. <laughs> also, whenever someone complains to you or they criticize and they say something that, that maybe hasn't been communicated from from one of us, from stage, from an email, what if it's just a rumor? And what if by listening or feeding into that, you're really dividing the body of Jesus? Here's the thing. Hurt people hurt people. And a lot of us are hurting right now. We're mourning the loss of the Reinhardts. Some of us are mourning over Ken not being the pastor anymore. I'm at the top of that list, all right? (laughs) Some are mourning over my age, and and we're believing things like, well, you know, Patrick's just trying to make this all about young people. He's trying to push all the old people out. We're no longer going to be a multi-generational church anymore. I mean, really? Really? We're mourning over how something maybe isn't the way that it used to be. And so let's just continue to practice grace And remember that blessed are the flexible, for they shall not get bent out of shape, all right? And let's remember this, guys. Let's remember that we're at war. We're at war. But we're not the enemy. And our culture is not the enemy either. Satan is trying to divide and disrupt big visions that he knows will decrease his reign. Now, I'm not trying to be hyper-spiritual by saying this, but is it any coincidence that our church has experienced attack after attack after attack this year after committing to a massive vision to reach more and more people in the future? And so let's remember that Jesus is the foundation here. He's not changing. He's really the senior lead pastor here, okay? That's not changing. And we're still trying to do whatever we can to reach as many people as possible. And so really the opportunity before us goes like this. We can choose to live in fear. We can choose to live in faith. You see, fear, fear makes us territorial, right? 
Fear makes us want to hang on to things that, that God says, look, it never really was about that. But faith is the place where we choose to trust Jesus even when it's difficult. Faith is when we believe that our best, most gratifying days as a church are still before us. And so today, all right, we have an opportunity to practice faith as a church. All right, we knew that it would be a long journey for us when it came to finding a new worship pastor. We've been on this journey for about a year now, and we have interviewed probably over a dozen candidates. We've observed guys all across the country because we knew that this was a really important role for us as a church. This past October, we were introduced to a guy by the name of Jeremy Locke, and, and from the first time we had conversations with Jeremy, we knew that there was something different and special about him. And so we got he and his wife Brielle here as fast as as we could, and we interviewed them, and, and we had them interact and mingle with a lot of you, and we just saw that there was instant chemistry, and that, and that this is the guy that God has been preparing for us for a really long time, and, and so we are very excited to put before you today, on behalf of our elders, this decision to make Jeremy Locke our next worship pastor here at Crossroads. <clears throat> And so if you're a member, um, there are some ballots on the end of your rows here, okay? We want you to go ahead and pass those down. Again, if you're a guest with us today, if, if you don't call, if you're just a, kind of an attender, this really isn't for you. This is for those who are uh, members here and are committed to Crossroads, then, then we want you simply to affirm this decision. It's, it's what we do according to our bylaws here, Okay. And uh, when you're done filling out that ballot, simply uh, take it to an usher on your way out or drop it off at the Connection Center. Uh, drop it in one of those slots, all right? We need to make sure that Russia's not going to hack into this vote, all right? <laughs> so we've got to be careful, right? So go ahead and fill that out and uh, drop it off as we leave here today. You know, Isaiah chapter 9, in a prior moment in Isaiah's ministry, he, he kind of went on with another metaphor that described this Messiah, this King, Jesus, who would come into this world. And you've probably heard this passage if you've been a part of church before. It goes like this. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. And so what this means for us is that the light of Jesus, he can shine into the darkness of your marriage. The light of Jesus can shine into the darkness of your depression. The, the light of Jesus can be with you as you go and see your oncologist this week. And when all seems hopeless, he can be the one who will carry you through thick and thin. And so I wanted to end on kind of a high note, on a moment of celebration for us as a church today. Now, you probably know that I moved here from Texas, and I'm originally from Kentucky. There's a lot of redneck in here, all right? <laughs> and uh, so we're going to end by singing an old song written by Hank Williams, all right? See, I do love old people, all right? <laughs> it's called I Saw the Light, and it just talks about how that moment, some of us, when we met Jesus, and how our life never changed, all right? So we're going to end celebrating as a church and I just want you to know that we're going to be okay, all right? Jesus is not changing. We're going to keep our eyes on him. I'm not going anywhere. You might not like that, but I'm not, all right? <laughs> so I love you. Our staff loves you. Our elders love you. And we're going to get through this, okay? Let's stand up. 
Let's celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing, okay? God, I love you so much. And Jesus, I love what you're doing in this church. I love the work that you've just done in my life recently and how you haven't given up on me even when you had every right to throw in the towel. God, you see those dark parts of my life that I tried to hide, suppress, or deny, and, and yet your response isn't, isn't judgment, isn't punishment, but it's grace. Your light shines into the darkness in ways that, that we can't even imagine. So right now, we just want to thank you for that, and I pray for those of us here right now who we're just going through a really difficult time, and, and Christmas just reminds us of how much pain we're, we're going through and so would you comfort would you comfort those of us who are grieving during this season would you be the light in the midst of our desperation in the midst of our hopelessness and would you show us that you are the light that we can celebrate it's in the name of Jesus that we pray amen I wandered so aimless life filled with sin I wouldn't let my dear Savior in And Jesus came like a stranger in the night Praise the Lord, I saw the light